people. Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 441, and we are continuing in our series speaking with different game and fish agencies across western states. Today we speak with Colleen from New Mexico's Department of Game and Fish to understand their application process, their point structure, which, hint, they don't have one, and a whole lot more. We get updates on the status of different species and ask your listener questions and get some great answers from Colleen. We hope that you guys have been enjoying this series. We've gotten some great feedback, and I've been personally loving these conversations, so I hope you are as well. Thanks again to Colleen today and really all of the states that are joining us for this series. If you are enjoying the show, please consider taking a minute right now hit pause, and in your podcast app, leave a rating or review where you can. Since we don't have any advertisers or don't do any paid marketing for the show, your support with ratings and reviews helps us tremendously. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Let's dive right into this conversation with Colleen. Colleen, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to uh, chat with you again. We chatted offline uh, before recording. It was great to meet you and made me even more excited to chat today. Um, just to kick things off, if you can, let listeners know who you are, what you do, uh, there for the department, and any of your background as well that you'd like to share maybe from before your time with the department. Well, Mark, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to the discussion and giving some of this really useful information out to your listeners and anybody else that might be interested in hunting in New Mexico. So my name is Colleen Payne. I'm the public information specialist for the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. I've been with the department um, just over two years now, but I have been around the hunting industry and and hunting my entire life. Um, Started hunting um, when I was 12 here in New Mexico, my first hunt was a mule deer in northern New Mexico and kind of got the bug for hunting ever since, fortunately. So um, it's it's been a tremendous place to hunt and uh, really cool places to see in the state. And so I know a lot of people have um, had the opportunity to do that here. And, you know, we always love to have more people experience um, what it's like hunting in New Mexico. It's a, it's a really cool place. Well, we for all the states are kind of starting with a high level overview of what it's like to hunt in the state, meaning uh, the process of obtaining tags and things like that. And um, yeah, if you can, I know that, you know, as this episode was released, there's some opportunities to apply currently, but just a 30,000 foot overview of application, kind of like seizing season and timing for uh, most of those big game species. Sure. So our application season opens typically in January each year and closes the middle of March. So our deadline this year will be March 20th. Um, And applications are for all species. So we actually have um, a couple different smaller draws as well, but they will take place in the same time frame. And those include bear and turkey. Um, We'll have sandhill crane later in the summer. Um, but the majority of the big game hunting is going to take place from that January to March timeframe. Uh, we do not have a point system in New Mexico, so it's 100% random lottery draw. 
So you have an equal opportunity every year to draw tags um, in New Mexico. Um, our applications, um, you, you apply by species, <clears throat> and then you have three choices with each species when you submit an application. Um, so you could apply for elk, three different species, deer, three, or, or excuse me, elk, three different hunt codes, hunt choices. So it could be any legal weapon, which is typically all your rifle hunts, but uh, you can also hunt with bow or muzzleloader during the any legal weapon hunts. You can have muzzleloader only hunts, and then you have archery only hunts. Um, and those are included in majority of the different species. We have 10 different species that you can apply for here in New Mexico that include elk, mule deer, coos deer, uh, pronghorn antelope, bighorn sheep, Barbary sheep, uh, turkey, bear, javelina, oryx, ibex. Um, so we've got a lot of very diverse species and some of them that could only be found in New Mexico um, with our exotics. So really unique opportunities here. What's also really unique about hunting in New Mexico is you can find a will or a way to almost hunt year round. Um, majority of our hunting seasons start in August and go through February to March, but some of our um, oryx hunts are 10 months out of the year. If they're off-range hunts, I know we're getting maybe a little lower in elevation than details <laughs> now, but um, you know, mountain lion can also be year-round depending on if the zone's open. So you know, if you really wanted to, you can find really cool, unique opportunities to hunt year-round in New Mexico, including waterfowl, including upland birds, um, predators, that sort of thing. So it, it presents a, a really cool opportunity for folks that might be coming through or making their hunt plans in other states. Um, they can kind of work in the schedule with New Mexico, uh, different hunt schedules. I may have missed it in there, but can you talk about when those results are generally available? Absolutely. So uh, with the draw deadline being, it's usually the third week in March. Uh, so like I mentioned, it's March 20th this year. We're expecting draw results to be out about a month later, which is going to be April 24th. Um, we've had a pretty good history in the past of releasing draw results early. So it could potentially be earlier than that, but it will for sure be by April 24th of this year. Um, we're one of the states that um, opens sooner. Um, and gets the results out sooner. So uh, hopefully that helps hunters kind of plan out their schedule for the year once they know what their draw results look like. And then just touching on the logistics of you essentially prepay for, you know, if you're going to apply for elk, you're prepaying for that and then would be refunded if unsuccessful, uh, apart from some minor like processing fees. Is that correct? Correct. So all applications, uh, or whenever you apply for a hunt in New Mexico, you have to apply um, and pay for the license, your general hunting license, and your application fee all up front. Um, so that that's one of the differences, I guess, with us in some other states is that we do require those fees all up front. So you would um, you would pay for that at the time of application, and then if you're unsuccessful in the draw. Within um, usually one to two weeks after the draw uh, results have been posted, refunds will process. So the only thing that's not refundable is your general hunting license and your application fee. If you're a resident, it's $7. If you're a non-resident, it's $13. Um, so you'd be getting the remaining back 
hopefully you don't have to worry about refunds because we'll pay you on tag. Um, but it's good. It's good information to know kind of if you've got, you know, money kind of spread out on different cards or how you're processing your payments. And then I did want to hop back and just clarify for listeners who maybe didn't catch it. We talked about three choices and then you mentioned essentially three different seasons based on weapons. But I did want to just clarify it's not that you can mix those however you'd like, right? So if you're only interested in, say, rifle elk, you could apply for three different units that are all any weapon seasons or essentially rifle hunts, correct? Correct. So let me maybe go back another step too. So every single one of our hunts is assigned what we call a hunt code. Um, and I would love to reiterate that that hunt code is your golden ticket. If you're trying to get your applications processed with us over the phone or online, you need that hunt code in order to do your application. Um, so if, if folks are looking through our role and information booklet, which is now available online, um, you can see the 2024, 2025, uh, big game hunting rules booklet that's on our website. New this year is um, it's all combined in one document, but all of the deer hunts, all of the elk hunts, all of the pronghorn hunts are going to be assigned a hunt code depending upon unit, depending upon season date, and depending upon weapon. So you need that hunt code in order to apply. All of the units <clears throat> for the most part and all species for the most part are broken down um, by archery season, muzzleloader season, and rifle season. So for your example of if somebody wanted to rifle elk hunt um, and they picked a specific area, say a specific game management unit that they wanted to hunt in, they can look in the rule and information booklet and see the hunts that are available. Um, if they picked a, a unit that maybe has three rifle elk hunts available, they could use that same unit and just pick all of those hunt codes. Um, if they wanted to change units. They can definitely change units, change seasons. Um, you'll see a lot of like the archery hunters. We'll, we have two different archery um, hunts for elk that are early season, that are in the rut. And so they'll typically do the first hunt, second hunt. They maybe pick a different unit, a nearby unit um, in a similar fashion. So you can, you can mix and match however you want. Um, but with that also being said, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention anything about draw odds, <laughs> draw <laughs> odd reports, um, because that's kind of the game that hunters have to play now is looking at those draw odd reports and seeing what their best chances are or drawing a tag because they're not always necessarily guaranteed. Um, so we have our draw odds report on our website. Um, you can search that and you can look at previous years as well. So you can compare maybe 2020 to 2023, um, just to see what things may have changed in the unit that you want to hunt. Um, there has been a lot of changes in the last couple of years and, you know, we've seen a big increase in the amount of people that want to hunt in New Mexico. So it's certainly changed the draw odds. Um, and it also will help tell you kind of in what order you should be putting those hunt codes, um, Putting a hunt that has harder to draw odds as your first choice is probably um, better recommended than um, putting the easiest one to draw first, um, because you want to at least maybe leave your chance and leave yourself an opportunity for that third choice to do that. Um, also, that being said, depending on the amount of tags that are available, um, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of come into play into what people are looking for when building their hunt plan, but there's there's so much that go in. We could probably spend hours just talking about that alone. 
Um, but you you certainly want to look at that draw odds report when you're doing uh, selecting your hunts and kind of planning things out. And then if you decide that you want to give us a call to do your applications, um, just having those hunt codes really helps our staff on that end, getting your application processed. Um, but you can always log in or create an account on our website and you can submit your applications yourself. Um, so you create a basic account, just like most other states, um, collect some information from a, from you, um, and then you're able to do your draw applications, purchase any over-the-counter um, habitat stamps, register for education classes, that sort of thing. So um, strongly recommend people ensuring that they can get into their account before the draw deadline. I, so as you mentioned, there's no point system in New Mexico, and I want to talk a little bit more about maybe some of the reasons for that, but First, can you kind of walk through in somewhat plain English how the draw works? Meaning, like we just had an episode with Arizona, and obviously they do have a point system. And so when they described their process for how the draw works, they were like, well, you know, it's kind of a hybrid between a preference point and a bonus point. And the first step is that the draw does this. And then it has certain percentages of tags reserved for that. And there's a second and third pass. And then, you know, a third through fifth pass. And they kind of like described what is going on and called the mechanics or like flow of the draw process. Mm -hmm. um, and I would assume that that would be hopefully somewhat simpler than New Mexico because there's no points. But is there things like... um you know, the questions I would want listeners to understand would be, is an applicant pulled and then their choices assessed or is a hunt pulled first and then finding applicants with choices that may meet that hunt? So just kind of walk us through as best you can, because I know it still can get complex, how the draw actually works. Right. And it it is different for every state. And <laughs> I can tell you ours is much simpler already, which yeah. is maybe <laughs> Part of the reason why we don't have a point system because it can get really muddy really fast um, but it also gives a lot more opportunity to folks to be able to draw each year if they played their odds right um so big picture it um we do have quotas so because we don't have a point system or preference points we give preference i guess per se with our quotas so 80, at least 84% of tags for a specific hunt are reserved for residents. So for simple math, um, if there is a hunt code, say for elk, and there's 100 licenses for that specific hunt, 84 of them go to residents. Then 10% are reserved um, in what we call an outfitter pool. Um, those are available for residents and non-residents who contract with an outfitter um, for that hunt as well. So there's out of that hundred example, 10 licenses available in the outfitter pool. And then the remaining six are for non-residents. And those are non-residents non -con not contracted with an outfitter. So 84%, 10%, 6% is the breakdown. Um so when you submit an application and we run the draw, we run the draw per application. So it's not run per hunt or um, necessarily per species, but we're going to pull the pull your application. We're going to take a look at it and see, okay, what's your first hunt choice? We're going to look at the list and see what available hunts 
um, are available. Each application is assigned a sequence number. Um, so you kind of come up within sequence, right? Um, look at the sequence number. They're going to look at your first hunt choice. They're going to look at the list and see how many tags are available for that choice. It, if there are tags still available, they're going to assign you your first choice. If there's not tags available, it's going to roll to your second choice and it's going to do the same thing. It's going to look at the list. It's going to see if there's any tags still available for that hunt code. Um, if so, you'll get your second choice. If not, you're, it's going to move to the third. So I know some states do it a little differently that they might do it by hunt choice. They might do it by species area. Uh, we do it by application. So we're going to run through your application and see what your first or third choices are. And we're going to try to assign you a tag based on what's left over where you pull in the sequence. Um, your, an individual's application is pulled essentially randomly, right? So that's part of that sequence. Mm -hmm. Like every, mm -hmm. every person's assigned the sequence number. It's obviously random. And then yep. you're just going through those sequences. And then I would also assume this is you're making passes per species, right? So like, right. let's say I was the miraculously, like had the best sequence number ever. And I applied for five species. That doesn't mean I'm up first for all five of those species. I'm assuming it's like, hey, we're doing the elk draw now. Mark had a great sequence number. We pulled his choices, looked at that. But then my sequence number, when it comes time to do deer could be different i wouldn't be at the top of the list for all my species correct yep okay. so each application gets its own sequence number so think of um your elk application is different than your deer application got it okay yep. thank you yep um so it it can it's definitely a process and and how to do it um one thing i'll mention too is we do have um you can attach to other people's applications. So you can do like a group application. Um, and I, I mentioned that because we probably have a lot of um, non-residents that are maybe listening to this podcast wondering, oh yeah, I'm going to go with my buddies and we're going to go do a group trip. Um, definite, my advice is to definitely take a look at the draw odds when you're doing that, because if there's only so many licenses available to non-residents, you're going to limit yourself. Um, so just be, if, if say you mark had a really high sequence number for elk and you, you attached with two of your friends to come hunt elk in New Mexico. Um, but we pull your application, we look at your first hunt choice and there's only one license left for that hunt code. We don't give it to you because you're attached to two other people. We would need three licenses in mm -hmm. order to do that. So just something for people to keep in mind. Um, if you're if you're gonna do group parties, make sure that you're doing that where there's gonna be enough tags available to do that. Super helpful. So can you talk talking about points in particular? <laughs> Obviously a hot topic, especially over the last handful of years, states, point creep, increased demand, et cetera. Um New Mexico hasn't had a point system for a long time, since before any of this. So it's interesting for me to think how New Mexico is positioned without a point system, especially as it relates to the last, call it decade, of other issues with point systems. But any background to that? Any more reasoning other than you mentioned simplicity? I would just love to hear more about, has that, not, as far as I'm aware, always been the case? But yeah, I guess any anything on that topic of, hey, New Mexico's pretty unique in this regard for all these species. 
and not having a point system. Yeah, we're we're one of the few states that doesn't have a point system. Um, it's obviously worked well for us for the you know 124 years that we've been around. <laughs> um, I I don't anticipate it changing anytime soon. Um, but you know there, there's always different things that come up in different management practices that go into play, but, um, you know, it's worked really well for us. And, and again, it's worked really well for our residents because they get 84% of the tax. So there's, there's still, um, opportunity every year to be able to go on some sort of hunt and not have to kind of be in this limbo phase of I've got to wait, or I've got, I drew a tag and now I have to wait so many years or, I've got to wait so many years before I even get a chance. So I think it just kind of levels the playing field and makes it more, you know, true lottery system. And um, like I said, it's worked really well for us. And so I, I think we'll keep it that way for as long as we can. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's a state that I like considering. And one thing I like considering about my application strategy with New Mexico is there may be certain years that I know, for example, like, oh, as much as I'd love to archery elk hunt in New Mexico, like, I already have plans or, you know, mm-hmm. something else going on. Um, but going back to what you said earlier about the wide-ranging calendar of New Mexico, mm-hmm. there's so much other opportunity to look at, right? Like, I could look at a hunt for February or, yeah. you know, December, things like that, and still go, okay, like, my, my hunt year is starting to take shape, and there's certain seasons that... Uh, as much as I'd love to, I, you know, I don't want to draw a tag for New Mexico for a certain season or time of year, but there's all these other cool opportunities and it's like being able to throw your name in the hat for that stuff to me is really cool and exciting. It It is the fact that you can kind of help plan your year, you know, slightly around our schedule too, because, you know, our, our draw results typically come out sooner than some of these other states too, which is really nice to know what that schedule looks like, but um, you know, if you're trying to understand or balance your, your point strategy in other states, um, you know, you know that this might be a random one, but if you didn't draw your elk tag in, you know, Nevada or Utah, then, um, you can look at different opportunities here, but you can also look at different species. You know, if, if you are, maybe you are going to, um, pull your points in another state this year and, and draw that tag, which is awesome. You know, you can still plan for that, but if you still wanted to plan for a later season hunt, you can definitely do that. Um, our, we have um, some later season elk hunts in December. Um, all of our antler lists or um, cow hunts are reserved for residents, but we do have a few um, six point or better archery elk hunts in December um, in different units. We've got Barbary sheep hunts. We've got Oryx hunts, both on and off range um, Havelina, one of my favorites. Um, so, you know, there's still lots of cool stuff going on. Also, we have our archery, um, deer hunts that are actually going on right now. They're the, uh, start the 1st of January through the 14th. So there's still lots of kind of late season hunts going on. Uh, for the most part, our weather is pretty good down here. We've had kind of the last couple of weeks of crazy weather. And so I feel bad for those archery hunters right now, but, um, definitely something to keep in mind for for late season hunts as you're planning out your schedules for the year just one i guess final question which again i know there's so many questions we could keep talking just about (laughs) applications but are there any consistent or recurring misconceptions about 
applications or drawing that you just want to be able to speak to before we move on to other topics of listener questions? You know, we hear a lot of, I've been applying for 12 years and still can't draw an oak tag. Those are our folks that are hung up or really want to hunt a specific area with a specific weapon type. And that's great. If that's what you want to do, do it. But if you want to draw an elk tag, look at the draw odds report. Um, that's probably one of the, the maybe the biggest misconceptions when it comes to applications is people just don't know what to apply for or how the application process works and how they should arrange their hunt codes in order to be successful. So, you know, me personally, my hunt strategy changes every year. <laughs> There's some hunts that are, that I'm going to be putting the same hunt codes for that are, you know, some of those once in a lifetime hunts that I will always put in for, but um, depending on maybe what I'm doing in other States or what my travel plans or family life might look like might change what I apply for and how the, um, the draw odds report looks like, you know, I might be like, you know what? I just, I really just want to draw a deer tag. I just want to go deer hunting. Let me look at some, at some draw hunts that at least provide me an opportunity to draw a tag versus, well, I'm going to draw, I want to apply for a hunt that I have a really good opportunity of killing a big deer. So there's a lot of factors that kind of go into play when doing those. And so just to reiterate, man, just look at that draw odds report. I think that would help people tremendously on doing that. And if you haven't drawn a elk tag in 10, 12 years, number one, I'm sorry. Number two, read the draw odds report. (laughs) Number three, call us. We are here to help you. Um, You know, that's, that's kind of what we're here for. Our uh, customer service center and our offices uh, help people now until the draw, it's, it's that busy draw time season. And so uh, we're here to help you the best we can, but don't wait till the last week to do it. Yeah, cool. Is there, I don't know if this is easy to answer or even like tracked or something you may have data on. Let's say since draws are essentially based on last draw season, right? Last application season. Do you see variability in last year this tag had pretty good odds which means this year there could be a lot of people interested in it because they want a good opportunity to draw a tag therefore more people apply for it this year so even though last year it had good draw odds because more people applied for it this year those draw odds then kind of like shift in a certain way does that make sense yeah it does and um it's not something that i can check um readily. Um, but you can always look at last year's also. So you can look at the 2022 um, season. Mm. So we have all those reports that go back, um, you know, several years that you can kind of look at the trend and see how things have done. Also, you know, when you do that, you kind of have to keep in mind our, our rule cycle, um, which changes every four years. And that's going to change um, potentially things about a certain species or about a certain hunt, for instance, this hunting season that we're currently in right now um, was the first year that we eliminated scopes off of muzzleloaders. So the muzzleloader odds could be much different this year. Um, So you can look at what people applied for with that new muzzleloader rule change um, last spring and that might help you in applying for this year, but we can't, we don't release any of the stuff that's happening right now 
um, until after the draw and everything's over. So unintentional but perfect segue, Colleen. Um, <laughs> as we get to listener questions, and again, I just like to reiterate. These are your listener questions, not my questions. So some of these I know the answers to. Some of these questions I have no idea what they're talking about. So <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's do those ones too. Let's then. do those ones. But there was questions about changes to the muzzleloader loader regulations and some of the reasoning for that. So um, you just mentioned it. Let's go ahead and talk about it. Yeah. So um, over the years, our biologists have been kind of tracking the success rates, harvest rates. Um, of all species and all hunts. And um, they saw a dramatic increase in the success rates of our muzzleloader hunts as technologies changed, right? Um, from, I think, let's see, I think it was from 1998 to 2000, the success rate for muzzleloader hunts was 17% lower than the success rate for rifle hunts. Uh, between 2017 and 2021, that changed from zero to two percent so it was almost the same success rate as our rifle hunts um when our biologists are managing these units you know they're managing a, upon a certain harvest objective so they may you know want to harvest only so many animals and so when they're setting those tag numbers if the success rate is getting too high we have two options um which is what happened here we could either cut the number of tags um which would have been drastic to do um, or we can adjust the technology availability, uh, which was removing scopes from muzzleloader, making it a little bit more primitive um, type hunt, which what it was originally intended to do. Um, it was originally intended to, to provide an, an additional hunting opportunity for hunters uh, to hunt with a muzzleloader. But obviously, as technology advanced and changed, um, that wasn't something that we accounted for when these hunts were originally offered. So um, that was why the muzzleloader rule change happened is because people were just getting too good <laughs> with hunting and um, the success rates were just too high and we were killing too many animals that weren't meeting the, and it wasn't, um, you know, meeting that harvest objective is going much higher, which isn't good sustainability wise. We want to make sure that we're managing those resources appropriately, not over harvesting. Um, and that's what was beginning to happen. So we want to um, still provide hunt opportunity for folks to go out. So it was, it came down to literally we either cut tags or we adjust the technology. So um, a lot of folks didn't want to see us have to cut tags because they have a hard enough time maybe drawing some of these tags as it is. So this still provides that opportunity for people to be able to go out. With that, those two options are pretty self-explanatory. Was that something that those two options were considered with public input heavily? Or, uh, I mean, was the, well, I guess in some of these conversations with some state agencies, we've talked a little bit about how those agencies are structured and the differences between the department, the commission, and the legislature, et cetera, and how that creates regulations. We don't necessarily have to go full depth into that, but I am curious as much as you want to share for a change like this, what does that process look like? Yeah. So like I, I mentioned a little bit ago, we have a four-year rule cycle. So every four years, um, the rule cycle opens, we can adjust um, anything related to this. Um, it could be hunt dates, it could be bag limits, it could be uh, technology um 
equipment, manner and method, um, that sort of thing. So we can make a lot of these adjustments as as needed every four years. And so that comes with proposals that come from our biologists to our commission. Um, our game commission is the one that will review all these proposals and, and make the final decision of yay or nay um, or any modifications to. Some of our um, rules that our department follow have to go under state legislature, like you mentioned, and some are, are rule, are just commission rule. So depending on what those things are, it depends on the, the way people can get involved with it. Both ways um, have opportunity for public input, and we're encouraging the public to participate in those because um, this is a public resource, and so we want we always want your input. Um, so when the rule cycles come available for us, uh, any of these hearings that are open, we do have a public comment period that we can receive comments online, which we always have all of our proposals on our website and ways to submit those comments. Um, individuals can also attend any of our public game commission meetings and make comments during that agenda item. Um, so there's multiple ways to provide feedback, um, make your comment known whether you're for or against any of the changes to the proposals. And so um, as somebody that, you know, I've, I've hunted here my entire life, I've been involved in the commission process um, in previous roles as uh, a member of the public and representing organizations and now with the department. And I, I strongly encourage people to get involved with the process. You see a lot of changes going on with a lot of state agencies across the United States and, and hunter issues that are coming up. Um, hunters need to have a voice in doing that whether it is at a game commission meeting or at a legislative hearing or helping create um, any legislation that might help wildlife. Um, so we we strongly encourage public input um, and we take that into consideration when making these rule adjustments and changes. All right. So this is a very straightforward question that came through. Okay. Are there over-the-counter deer tags for non-residents? Oh, that is very straightforward. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, so the, the majority of our over-the-counter opportunities for deer um, are going to be private land only tags. Um, you do need written permission from the landowner um, to hunt those properties and to obtain those tags. So um, once you get your permission from your landowner, then you can either log on to your online account, purchase your tag online, or you can come by one of our offices or licensed vendors to purchase your tag. The other um, over-the-counter option that isn't as um, straightforward, I guess, is if we do have any tags that were through the draw um, that did not get assigned to a hunter, um, we call them undersubscribed hunts, so just not as many people are putting in for them. Um, we have a, a fire sale or a leftover tag sale that is a very, very brief and there's literally a fire sale. Um, the first 24 hours are for residents and then it opens up to non-residents. And so if a non-resident got lucky after 24 hours and there's a tag left over, um, they better jump on it. But also keep in mind those leftover tags are left over for a reason. Sometimes um, they may not have um, as good as area to hunt, might be a little limited or or might not have as success rates or deer populations or something like that. So, but still an opportunity to go. Um, so those are the kind of two over-the-counter deer options. One of the other questions that was submitted is, 
what is the best way to determine non-resident draw odds by unit or elk, which you have talked about draw odds? I would like to extrapolate this question and also ask what other types of data, historical data, is available when considering opportunities? Like you just mentioned, okay, here's an undersubscribed tag. It could be undersubscribed for a reason. So immediately in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, um, yeah, historical harvest data, population numbers, uh, access, et cetera. So I guess talk about the best place to go find draw odds, but then as part of that, additionally, if you're looking at a unit for a species and season, is there other types of data readily available to give you a better feel for that hunt opportunity? Sure. So it just gives me another moment to get on the soapbox about the draw odds report. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the draw odds report, again, is available on our website that you can download and look at. It is an Excel document. Um, it is it lives on my desktop. It's always open <laughs> just because I always want to take a look at it. But um, speaking of historical data, you can look at the previous year's uh, draw odds reports as well. So you can kind of use that to break down by hunt code and uh, weapon type and unit. Um, but we also have on our on our website as well as past annual reports of harvest reports. So you can look at pronghorn, you can look at oryx, um, elk, deer. So you can look at the different harvest reports for different units as well. Um, you know, you can always visit with some of our biologists too, if you really want to get a feel for it. Um, we have some um, amazing staff that work for our department that know a lot about these areas. Um, you can also take into account any um, instances that maybe have happened in some of those public land areas. Um, two years ago, we had our two of our record wildfires in the state, um, our, our first and second largest wildfires ever in history. Um, so that's something to take into account. That's not information that we would necessarily have readily available on our website, but it's just things to consider of other things going on in the state when planning those uh, those hunts. So. This uh, listener question goes back to allocations. It was, does the number of non-resident hunters using private slash landowner opportunities affect the general tags and applications that are allocated? It does not. <laughs> so our um, the the number of non-resident hunters that that purchase landowner authorizations don't have any impact on draw licenses. Um, the the best way, I guess, for folks to kind of find more details on that topic is, you know, they can definitely visit our website as well. Um, but it does not affect how general tags or applications are allocated. I mean, we talked about that allocation in the first segment, and that's it sounds like pretty standard, like pretty fixed, right? Yeah. I mean, there the the harvest numbers, you know, are still used when, you know, biologists are looking at at hunts and tag allocations and stuff in those areas but it's not um it, it's not a deciding factor or it doesn't have an impact on the draw licenses next question that was submitted was what is the main concept behind the e plus system and how does it benefit the public and i should add to that for folks who don't know what is the e plus system <laughs> <laughs> so the e plus system uh stands for um, elk private land management use. 
Um, the main concept behind that is uh, really working with landowners um, for elk habitat. So as you might take a guess, elk don't really recognize land boundaries. Um, you know, they don't know that this side of the fence is private and this side of the fence is public. They know that, hey, there's a bunch of food here or there's some water over there or that's a good place to go in bed. So in in knowing that, <laughs> um, our biologists have worked to develop this E-plus system, which is the oh, private land use system, um, which really helps work with our uh, landowners who provide quality elk habitat and provide meaningful benefit to elk herds. Um, that obviously don't recognize these boundaries, uh, which results in benefits to the herd and public hunters, actually. Um, so if these private landowners are enrolled in this E-plus system um, and they fit into a certain category of receiving a um, unit-wide authorization, those public land hunters can access that private ranch to hunt. Um, that is part of the agreement with those landowners being involved in the in the system is that they're going to allow those public land hunters also um, to hunt there. So um, really opens up a lot of areas for people to hunt and, and get into. Um, it is a, a map layer on Onyx, if anyone's <laughs> interested. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can download that map layer and you can see what properties are available. So um, if a if a public land draw hunter um, has an elk tag and, you know, they're, they're looking at a bunch of elk that are on a private or a E plus property, then they're able to hunt those, those elk, which really open up, um, you know, some areas to hunt, but even some landlocked areas, if there's spots that, um, is a private land block that, um, is in between you and a bunch of other public, you can access through there to get to it. So this would be different than, like Montana has block management where it's, you know, public access program to private land, but it requires like advanced registration in certain instances and checking in and things like that. From what I heard and what you described, this sounds more open of like, hey, if this is land enrolled in E plus, do you need prior authorization and anything like that registration to access it? Or it's like, nope, just go hunt. Yeah, it is. It is more open than that. Um, so if it is one of those properties that's enrolled in there, you can go in there. That's part of the agreement between the department and that landowner as they're providing that access for them. It's always a good idea if there if there's a, you know, a house nearby or um, or if you know the landowner, you're able to get a hold of the landowner, let them know. It's just, you know, good hunter courtesy mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and good morals and ethics to maybe do that ahead of time too. But um, you don't need um, written permission to hunt those E-plus properties like you would if you were hunting private property that wasn't E-plus, if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. Uh, another very straightforward question. Can you clarify how E-tags work? Absolutely. So we have two different options when it comes to tagging your animal on a hunt. So when you apply in the draw, um, you'll have an option to either select e-tag um, or not select it, and you would receive a paper carcass tag. That is the traditional tag that many of us are, are familiar with. That is the tag that the department mails you um, with your hunt dates and your license and everything on it. Um, 
Our tags here in New Mexico, I think, are really cool. <laughs> um, we change color on them each year, but um, they're adhesive, so they work like a kind of like a luggage tag. If you were going through the airport, that you would pull, you would notch your dates on it first, pull that adhesive tag on, and then you can attach one to the antler and one to the hindquarter. Um, so those work really well. But if you have the e-tag option, it is essentially your license and your tag on your phone through our e-tag app. You do need to re-download the app every year if you're going to be doing e-tag, but you would essentially log into the app. You would see your hunt listed on there on your profile. And then when your hunt starts, you can select that hunt, open it up. And if you shoot an animal, there'll be a button that says tag my animal. You click tag, it um, tags it in our system, um, but it gives you a confirmation code. And that confirmation code you still need to attach to the animal. So having a piece of duct tape or um, something like that in your in your pack's handy, you just write that confirmation code on it and then attach it to the animal. Um, even with eTag, you still need to submit a harvest report. So that's maybe something that we we see a lot of our eTag hunters maybe struggle with is they think, oh, just because I hit the eTag in the app, it means that it also submitted my harvest report. But you, uh, whether you went on your hunt or not, whether you have e-tag or paper tag, you still need to submit a harvest report. That's my other PSA for the day. <laughs> is that is that answer that on e-tags? Yeah, yeah. Is harvest reporting mandatory across all seasons and species? Uh, across most species, um, it's not required for. Um, waterfowl, upland game, um, but it is required for elk, deer, pronghorn, bighorn, ibex, oryx, javelina, barbary sheep, um, all the big game species still required. Um, the The deadline for most of those is going to be um, uh, February 15th for like elk, deer, pronghorn. Um, if you do not submit that harvest report in time, you do get an $8 late fee. Um, if you do not submit it at all and try to apply in the draw, which the deadline is March 20th, um, if, if you apply for hunts for next year and you haven't submitted a harvest report for this last year, your application will be removed from the draw. So always make sure to get those harvest reports in. It's just good practice to do it as soon as you get back from your hunt, submit your harvest report. Whether you went or whether you harvested, you still have to submit a harvest report. A question came through that said, what are the best youth hunts to apply for? Which obviously, if there was an answer and we gave it to tens of thousands of people at this moment, <laughs> they would probably not be the best youth hunt to apply for anymore. But Great. Um, yeah, <laughs> can you talk about New Mexico is a state uh, that has some great youth opportunities, including for non-residents. So just to talk about that a little bit and any overview you want to share there. It does. So um the first part of that question, all of them, <laughs> apply for all of them. Um, so for most species in the state, including bighorn sheep, we have youth only hunts. Um, the odds in those are phenomenal. Um, you could also, t they are also listed in the draw odds report. So you can look and see how many youth are applying in some of those hunts um, for most of them are all going to be, um, for the most part, any legal weapon uh, rifle hunts. 
Um, but you can take a look and see, you know, how many people are applying for different ones of those. So the the rules, at least for youth hunts, is the youth has to be 17 or under at the time of the hunt. So say they're 17 right now and they're applying for pronghorn hunts that start in August and that youth turns 18, say in October, they're good. But if they turned 18 in June, they're not going to be eligible to apply. And they wouldn't even see that option when they do apply, um, just the way our system's set up. But um, they have to be at least 17 or older at the start of the hunt. Um, and there's some really cool <laughs> opportunities. We we just changed um, on White Sands Missile Range to once in a youth time. Um, so a youth hunter can apply for an orcs hunt on White Sands Missile Range um, as a youth. And then once they become an adult, they're also eligible for their once in a lifetime. So they can essentially go on there twice. Um, the odds for a lot of these youth hunts are really good. The season dates are also phenomenal uh, for a lot of these youth hunts. Um, our, our commission has been and department's been supportive on adjusting some of these hunt dates too to help um, families during, um, say, like Thanksgiving break. We have some deer hunts that are almost all of Thanksgiving break instead of just a couple days because um, we know those kids are going to be out of school. So a lot of those are, are adjustable. Um but yeah, there's some, there's some cool youth hunts. I always give my dad a hard time of like, why didn't you ever apply me for these youth hunts? Cause I missed out on some good draw odds. Um, we, we just applied for hunts together, which worked out really well too, but, um, definitely encourage parents to take a look at those youth opportunities in New Mexico. Not a lot of states offer those, especially for some of these species. Um, and it's, it's just a cool way to get your kids involved. Um, and another thing on that note too, is any of the youth that are applying in the draw for hunts do have to take hunter education. Um, it is, it is mandatory. We offer a variety of different classes. Um, we do in-person classes, we do field days. We have some camps that typically go on during the summer. Uh, we have online courses for youth 10 and over. Um, so we encourage parents to please get their kids in a hunter's ed class sooner than later, because majority of our classes are taught by volunteers that are taking time out of their lives and their busy schedules to host these classes, uh, free of charge. So, um, don't wait till the last minute to get your kid into a class before the draw deadline. Uh, cause our, our volunteers are, are really cranking right now on offering classes. But if you see a class offered any time of year, get your, your student enrolled in that too, because that means they'll be good and set before the draw. And a non-resident youth is required to take the New Mexico hunter education or their home state hunter education may be followed? It, um, any state. We recognize any state uh, okay. for hunter education. And it's required to have before the application, not before the hunt. Correct. Okay. Yep. Great. Um, all right. This question reads it doesn't seem that new mexico is often discussed for bear hunting opportunities why do you think that is what are the bear populations and hunting opportunities or seasons like in new mexico oh man because it's like a hidden secret <laughs> <laughs> no we have we actually have some really good bear hunting in the state of new mexico also mountain lion um both of those licenses are available over the counter we do have some draw only um, bear hunts. They are for residents on our our wildlife management areas. Those are typically spring hunts. Um, 
So we we do have a few spring draw hunts that are available for bear, but for the most part, um, it's going to be over the counter. Those dates typically go in the fall. Um, we have bear management zones across the state um, with different bear population densities. And so some of those zones close earlier in the season than others. We do have some archery only season dates as well. Um, but it is, it's a great place to come and hunt bears. Um, there's some very challenging terrain um that you can find bears in <laughs> so if you're looking for you know if you totally got skunked on the draw in your state or a uh, resident of our state um some of those over-the-counter opportunities for like bear mountain lion are, are definitely available so um, one thing to, to mention too on those uh, with bear and mountain lion is there is a mandatory check-in of those bears if you do um harvest one, you do have to check it in with one of our officers or biologists. We take a tooth sample where we age those bears and track that data, uh, take a DNA sample as well, collect some info from you. Um, but like I mentioned, a lot of those um, really high bear density uh, zones do close quickly. So we encourage hunters to kind of keep an eye on the bear harvest report that is also available on our website. Just keep an eye on that or call our office to see what the quota is like because we do manage those uh, for harvest. And so if it gets close to the quota, you just want to be aware of that before you go and harvest a bear or if that zone has closed. So you just want to know that before you go out there. How frequently is that updated? When the season first opens, it's almost daily um, where we're updating those numbers as we're getting the harvest numbers, um, you know, from the field. Um, and from, you know, from hunters and from our officers, but um, it is, it's updated very, very frequently. Yeah. I've seen in different States, you know, there's quotas that can close and and some it's yeah. like, okay, check in every day. Yep. And then um, there's some, which I was surprised. I didn't know about it till recently. I think it was actually just in Arizona. One of their quota hunts, they, uh, you check in every week. It's like every oh. like Wednesday night they update during the season, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Yeah, we try to update ours as, as quickly as we get the data. Um, it, bear, bear hunting is one of those things for me that I always want to go and do. And by the time, um, you know, we've got other hunts that maybe wrap up or just schedule wise, by the time we are ready to go out, the zone closes. <laughs> so yeah. It can be a little frustrating, but there's still, you can still go and hunt other zones. Um, so just because one zone closes doesn't mean you can't go bear hunting. You just have to go to a different zone. A couple questions came through about Ibex. Uh, one asked if there was a plan for the declining Ibex population and uh, is the decline due to predation or other factors? Um, and then another question was similar and was just essentially asking about management plans for the future of Ibex in New Mexico. So what can you tell us about there? Yeah, so the updates that we got from our biologists on this is um, our our survey data is suggesting that the ibex population is is likely stabilized at this point. Um, the decline in the last several years was a result of higher female and immature um, ibex harvest. Um, the department definitely desires to maintain the ibex population in the Florida mountains, and it is Florida mountains, not Florida mountains. <laughs> it does of, look like Florida. Lot, I know a lot of folks wonder about that, um, but. We want to maintain the, op the ibex population on the Floridas um, to prevent ibex establishment on adjacent ranges like the Tres Hermanas or Cook's Peak. Um, ibex are very prolific um, animals, meaning they have a lot of babies. Um, they have a very 
a small gestation window and they breed year round. So um, they're not like elk that might have one calf a year. They can have potentially two sets of twins a year. Um, so we're expecting some of those numbers to still go back up. Um, in the past, our, our Ibex population has really fluctuated between high and low numbers. Um, and we want to get away from that type of management system and move more towards a, a stable population size that's realistic for that mountain range. It is a small mountain range. It's only you know six miles long. Um, and we have to work with the Bureau of Land Management on stocking rates there too. But um, that's kind of the the update we've gotten from our biologists now with uh, the Ibex population in the Floridas. Someone asked, do you think the outfitter pool encourages people to, quote unquote, game the system? And if so, why is it still in place? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I The... It's a, it's another opportunity to apply. So um, I, I don't think that it's a, an opportunity to game anything, but um, if people are looking for other opportunities to apply and um, have different um, experiences, um, it's a way to do it. We, we've seen a lot of residents utilize that pool and uh, outfitters and guides for their expertise to help them on hunts. Um, so it's just an opportunity and a unique one that New Mexico offers. This last question sounds like something I would come up as come up with as a podcast host to wrap things up, but it was a <laughs> listener question and we will uh, wrap up with it. What is the one thing that big game hunters should know about hunting in New Mexico, but most don't know or fully understand? And I won't limit you to one thing. So if you want to give <laughs> okay, three, then I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how many times I've mentioned it already, but the the draw odds report, that's probably one of the things that gets underutilized um, probably the most when people are doing applications. So maybe I just released all the all the secrets to everybody, um, but we're, we're here to help you. So maybe that's why. Um, you know, we have a really diverse habitat um, across the state, we've got everything from lowland deserts to prairies to high alpine forest floor elevations, you know, and everything in between. So depending upon what your hunting style is, your weapon preference, um, your physical abilities, there is a, a little bit of everything here for you to, to utilize there. Um, we also have such a diversity of our, our big game species too. Like I mentioned, we've got 10 different species that you can apply for. So, um, not, a, and some of those species you can't find in other states. So those are, those are kind of the big things. Um, if anybody's looking at, at doing other opportunities in New Mexico that aren't necessarily big game related, we've got lots of upland game and waterfowl. Uh, we have a huge migration corridor that comes through here for migratory birds and, and waterfowl. So, um, ducks, geese, cranes, um, all have opportunity here. Uh, then, you know, pheasants and quail um, are, are another opportunity we get, especially this time of year with our quail season open, we've get, we get people from across the country coming to hunt quail here, which is pretty cool that I wouldn't think such a small little bird would get people so excited, but it's exciting for us to see that excitement of, of people from all across the country and appreciate New Mexico landscapes when they come here. Um, but we've also got a couple of different non-hunting related things that the hunters can take advantage of during their time. So we've got actually a trout challenge and a bass challenge that our state office 
offers. Um, my counterpart um, out of our Roswell office, Melissa Garnett, helps run those programs and does an awesome job. And um, so you can come and catch all species of bass and all species of trout in New Mexico. So um, rainbow, brook, Rio Grande cutthroat, and Gila trout. So makes just an, if you're looking to break up maybe a portion of the hunt or want to add a couple days, it's just an, another cool opportunity to come see and do here. Colleen, this has uh, been very helpful. Thank you for taking the time, answering so many listener questions. Um, just to recap, draw odds report. Um, and <laughs> any yep. other resources, I'm assuming pretty much everything is just under the hunting section of the department website. Yeah, um, most of it's going to be under the hunting section, but some of it is spread out in other places too. Like our, our proposals are under our commission. Um, so there, there's lots and lots of information on the on the website. Um, we recommend starting there and starting in the rule and information booklet to find some of the answers to your questions. If you can't find any of those, you can always call us, call one of our area offices or our information center. We're here to help you out. Um, you can also reach out to us on social media. If you're not following us on our Facebook and Instagram pages, I encourage you to do so. Um, but uh, one other topic I, I would be remiss not to touch on too is um, starting in February, we will um, be opening our application process for game wardens. So if anybody is interested in working for New Mexico Department of Game and Fish as a game warden, we'd love to have you and we'd love to answer any questions that you might have on that. Um, the process, again, is also available on our website. So you can see what the requirements are, what the training process is like, the hiring timeline. Um, we do require a bachelor's degree um, with 12 credit hours related to the job duties. So if you've got some biology, some wildlife science, some criminal justice type classes, you're set to go. But um, that's something that we're always heavily recruiting for. And we hire game wardens twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall. So we will also be at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo in Salt Lake City next month with a the booth there recruiting. So if you have questions, come by and visit with us. We'll have some of our officers there to answer your questions and explain the hiring process for you. Well, thanks, Colleen. And uh, I'm excited to personally swing by and say, hey, at Hunt Expo. Yeah. So thanks for the time <laughs> and we'll see you then. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for having us. Um, we're happy to do it and uh, glad to see some other states hop on these podcasts too. So thanks for having us, Mark. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode in this series. We do have more to come. Be sure that you receive those episodes by hitting subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app that you are using, and you will receive those future episodes automatically for free. As always, if you have any questions for us, just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says ask us a question and you can leave an audio message from whatever device you're on right now that we can answer on a future Monday Minute episode. Thanks so much for your support and feedback. We'll talk to you soon.